being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. ever thought about why people act the way they do? Why are some people more difficult to deal with, while others are always pleasant? Let's find out together. Welcome to Human Behavior. What a trip. Your host is Dr. Jonathan Brower. Our program combines expert guests with people just like you who have questions or comments. We'll have fun exploring human behavior. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Brower. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Jonathan Brower. My show is called Human Behavior, What a Trip, and we're going to have a very interesting trip today. Uh, Mainly, I'm the one on the phone. I don't have any guests. I'd love to have people call in, and we can talk about whatever you bring up. The number to call in would be uh, 866-472-5792, and again, remember uh, to have a one first, then 866-472-5792. Five seven nine two, and um, so I'll either be doing a soliloquy the whole time, or eventually we'll have somebody who um, can be part of the show. Uh, I happen to be a sociologist and a psychotherapist, so I'll give you a little bit of background on me, so you can get an idea of what I do. So um, I was a sociology professor at California State University Fullerton. This was in California, um, from 1972 to 1999. And I loved doing the college professor stuff, except I didn't like having to grade students. And then um, uh, from 1984 through today and beyond, I'm a psychotherapist in private practice. And I do a very specific kind of therapy, which I can tell you about uh, later if need be. But right now, I want to let you know that... um, I have these blogs. If, you, if at some point you want to go to, uh, uh, what's it called? www.peoplewhatatrip.com and you can read my blogs. I may, t- I may read to you some of my blogs to get an idea of what I do and, what, and how I think. So um, let's begin. The kind of therapy I do is called intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy and uh, uh, intensive short-term, that sounds reasonable enough, but intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. Dynamic is uh, psychology talk for what's going on in the unconscious. And we all have uh, all kinds of things going on in the unconscious. We don't even know about them, but they uh, mess us up frequently. So... um, some of you, either you've been in therapy with therapists or you've seen movies where people are being therapists when they're playing their role as an actor or actress. And um, the kind of therapy I do is very, very different. Um, my job is to help people dismantle their defenses and to get to the core of what's going on with them. So I'm going to give you a, a vignette. And the vignette I'm giving you is uh, something that I frequently talk to and talk about when I'm speaking to a group of people who want to know about what I do. So um, in, this, in this vignette, it goes like this. Uh, Johnny, who's seven years old, walks up to his mother and says, Mommy, I'm so angry with you. I want to pull your eyeballs out and stab you in the heart. At that point, I uh, back off for a moment, then I, I speak to the audience, and I say, I ask the audience, whether they're men or women, assuming they're a parent or pretending they're a parent, I ask them their opinion. How would you respond to what, eight, excuse me, to what seven-year-old Johnny just said to Mommy? 
when Johnny said, Mommy, I'm so angry with you, I want to pull your eyeballs out and stab you in the heart. So um, very frequent kinds of re- um, responses that people in the audience would give, something like this. Uh, I'll give a few of them. One is, how dare you speak to that way to me, Johnny? Uh, I'm your parent. You shouldn't ever say those things to me. Another one might be something like, um, Johnny, go to your room and you're grounded for a week because I don't want to have to deal with what you just told me. Another way might be, how dare you speak to me that way? It can go on and on. And then uh, what frequently happens in these presentations, there's at least one person who actually has a young child or it could be someone who's pretending they have a child. They give the right answer. So in this particular case, when Johnny says to Mommy, I'm so angry with you, I want to pull your eyeballs out and stab you in the heart, uh, Johnny's Mommy says, Honey, I'm so glad you told me. I had no idea that I hurt you. Tell me, tell me what I've done to hurt you. And Johnny says... You don't spend time with me. You don't look at me. You hardly ever make contact with my eyes. You're uh, busy. I'm just not around enough for you. And that's why I wanted to pull your eyeballs out, because I want you to feel the same way I feel when you ignore my eyeballs and you don't look into my eyes and know about me in a deeper way. And then she says, Mommy says, Honey, I'm so glad you told me. I had no idea that I had hurt you so much. Tell me more about it. So Johnny tells her more about it, and they talk about it for a while, and she says, Honey, I'm so glad you told me about this. I'm not going to do this anymore, and if you find me do, if you do find me uh, being hurtful to you, then immediately point it out, and I will stop, and we will talk about it. And uh, he says, Okay. And then over time and it doesn't take a lot of time, they figure it out how he can talk about his anger towards mommy with wanting to pull her eyeballs out. Uh, and he's not actually threatening her, and she knows he's not threatening her, but he is getting from her that he's enraged, that he doesn't experience her as caring about her enough and wanting to know about him and to look into his eyes and into his soul. So they get, they get done with that part, and then mommy says, so tell me about um, why you wanted to stab me in the heart. And he says very clearly, Mommy, I wanted, I wanted to stab you in the heart because I want you to feel what it feels like for me when you don't listen and know about my heart. So I want to stab you in the heart so you can know how it is for me to feel you being uncaring and not loving enough towards me. And then again, Mommy says, Honey, I'm so glad you told me. I had no idea that I had been so hurtful to you. So they talk about it more, and uh, they end up having a lovely conversation, and they both make it clear that this, this, now this is a fairly, or actually a very healthy mom and a very healthy seven-year-old son. They each talk about it in a very loving way. So they had retaliatory rage towards each other, and um, but they didn't actually threaten anybody. And no one was threatened. Nobody was demeaned. Uh, but they both spoke about how much they love each other and how they both want to figure it out so they can speak about these strong emotions and still love each other, even in the moment having a strong feeling of power when they want to retaliate and hurt the other person. It's all in a fantasy. They're not going to do it in real life. Now, for some people, they seem to have some problem between fantasy and reality, which is a huge problem. So, for example, some of the patients I see in my practice, when they're um, having anger, frequently the first round of the anger they'll have will be with me because I represent a... uh, safer version of who it, who it is, in fact, that has really been hurtful to them. And um, when, they, when, the, when the child, or now an adult, being in therapy with me, who was the child, um, they may see me as the parent who is hurtful, 
and they would have strong, angry feelings towards me. They feel the muscle, muscle power in their body, but they, they have the, the ability to know that this is a fantasy, and they're going to talk about the fantasy. They're not actually going to hurt anybody in real life. For some people, that's very hard to know about. Those people are not safe to do this kind of therapy. So um, when the patient is angry with me... Oh, let me back up a minute. So uh, well, let me back up to the very beginning. So when someone comes into my office for the very first time, we've, pro- we've probably had a brief telephone call before, ahead, before they come to my office. But um, we don't do therapy over the phone for various reasons. And now you'll get to that in a minute, so or a few minutes. So when they first come into the treatment room, the very first thing I ask them is, what is your problem? I don't begin by saying, oh, did you have trouble finding the, the place where my office is? Or um, uh, did, what did you think of the Dodger Giant game last night? If they just When they bring anything like that up, I immediately cut it off because... They're putting up a wall and avoiding what's really inside them. My job is to help them get through the wall as as much as possible, as soon as possible, which may be 10 minutes, it may be three hours, it may be more. Oh, by the way, the first session is normally three hours in length. And it's three hours in length so that the patient gets plenty of time to start being aware of how they experience their anxiety and their defenses. So um, if you think of it for a moment, think of a rectangle on, the, on, the, on a piece of paper. But see the rectangle where it's upside down, so the, there's a bottom point, and then there's two points up to each side of the rectangle. So at the very bottom, there, a patient or a human being has in, impulses and feelings. But people get afraid of their impulses and feelings. So what do they do? They quickly go to anxiety. Now, anxiety symptoms are symptoms where the person is afraid of their, their feelings and they uh, need to be afraid of what's inside themselves, not someone else. We'll get back to that in a moment. And then anxiety symptoms are uncomfortable, so then people go over to the other corner of the triangle and that's where the defenses are, what we call walls or defenses. My job is to help them dismantle their defenses because until their defenses get dismantled, not much of real psychotherapy works, except for people who have very mild problems. So um, I want to talk about next about uh, anxiety for a moment. If you've noticed, much of the time when you or some other people you know who are anxious, there's no external threat. So uh, that means they have to be afraid of what's inside them. But let's take the other extreme. Let's pretend uh, you, the person I'm talking to, that uh, someone comes up to you with a knife at your throat or a gun at your head, and they're threatening to kill you. At that moment, this is, this is a fantasy right now, so as they're ready to kill you with a knife or a, a gun, you, this human being, is going to start having anxiety. And you're having strong anxiety because there's an actual... Uh, it's an actual problem in front of you. Someone is uh, going to hurt you. So you're not afraid of you. You're afraid of them. But in most cases, when people have anxiety symptoms, there's no one that they're afraid of. There's no external threat, to put it more simply. There's no external threat. So the only thing they can be afraid of with their anxiety is they're afraid of what's inside them. Now, what's inside, the, what's, what's inside them they're afraid of? They're afraid of what they want to do, what they think they want to do in fantasy and or reality. So, again, most people who are doing this kind of work, they do have some degree of knowing that they want to um, um, hurt or maim or kill the person who was important to them that hurt them in their, in their life, but they know it's a fantasy. And once they know it's a fantasy, if they're willing to look at the fantasy and see all the parts of the fantasy in, towards, in, in terms of the retaliation towards the parent or caretaker who they loved but also who has hurt them, 
then we get to the core, sort of get to the core of what's going on. So um, this is very deep therapy, and it works very fast. Uh, for most people, it's between 20 and 40 hours. They no longer need pills for their anxiety or their depression. Let me talk to you briefly about anxiety and depression. So um, when a young child is, for some reason, um, told to be quiet, told not to speak, told uh, go to your room, whatever it might be, that's not helpful for anybody. So when the child is angry and has murderous rage and they're unconscious, they're not even aware of it, they have murderous rage, retaliatory rage towards the parent who has hurt them, they now are in a huge bind because they love the parent, but they also want to hurt the parent. And if the person has been cruel enough, they, in their fantasy, want to kill the parent. But they quickly push the fantasy down because it's too much for a little kid with, uh, let's say, he's five years old or even eight years old, whatever, um, he can't, he, he or she, the child, can't tolerate all this. It's just too much to bear. So what they do is they push down their feelings, the strong feelings that they are afraid of. Okay, well, we can take a break right now. We'll come back, everybody. So uh, stand by. We'll have a minute and a half or two-minute break. I'm not sure what it will be but the engineer will let me know, and we'll come back and we'll continue this, for me at least, fascinating situation. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Legal Shield. Total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip, with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Jonathan Brower. My show is called Human Behavior, What a Trip. I love human behavior. I can't get enough of it. It's so fascinating. So here I am with my guest. I'm my own guest because I'm talking to a bunch of people who aren't uh, hearing anyone else. It's just me. So I'm going to go on. But if you ever want to call me today, uh, you can call 866-472-5792 and we can talk. So getting back to um, what I was talking about. So when the child has this retaliatory rage towards the parent, they have to push down their feelings and not know about them. So what, and how, do they do, how do they push it down? They depress themselves. They get depressed. When people get depressed, they uh, are kind of, uh, what's the word I would say, kind of spacey and out of it because... They're just in a sense, they're in a state 
not the state like in the Union, but in a state of, of mind, where they have to um, punish themselves for what they've done in the unconscious. In, in reality, they've not hurt anybody, but they have to punish themselves for the rest of their lives. If you've noticed, um, at times when people are depressed, they have a low energy, they don't sleep well, they either overeat or undereat. There's a whole bunch of symptoms, but those are some of them. And um, then, for the rest of their lives, these people are punishing themselves for nothing they've done in real life. They're punishing themselves for what their uh, impulses are and their fantasy, of which they're not even aware. So you've probably all seen people at times who self-sabotage, who uh, screw up in one way or another or many ways. Some ways might be uh, getting to work late all the time, or um, another way maybe um, they can't enjoy themselves. They have to be dour because it's not fair or right to be happy. So uh, if you can imagine it, that's a terrible a terrible, terrible sentence for someone to have to basically live in the basement or the dungeon, the uh, dungeon in the, bo- in the bottom of the castle where people are uh, chained to the wall. These are metaphors, but they work. So um, what happens is, I'll give you a fancy term. Uh, there's a punitive, people get, uh, have a punitive superego and they're... Uh, Superego is basically their conscience, and they have to keep punishing themselves and keep themselves from being able to be happy and to be warm and cordial in a, in a real way, not in a phony way. So this is a huge problem. So that's part of the problem is the depression part. But the other part has to do with anxiety. So I have these blogs that I've done. By the way, if you want to go to my blog sometime, it's uh, uh, www.peoplewhatatrip.com. So I'm going to click on to uh, this blog, and uh, I'm going to actually read it to you guys. So anxiety, what's the fear? Anxiety is a serious problem for a significant amount of people worldwide. When people have anxiety, they generally do not know what their anxiety is about. They may conjure up some notion such as, I can't stand my boss at the office. But this is just a vague notion. It really gets them nowhere. It just keeps them suffering from anxiety. Let's get some clarity. If some human being comes up to you and threatens you with his gun pointed within a few inches of your head, you're going to have some very strong anxiety symptoms, such as accelerated heart rate, lightheadedness, dizziness, fainting, urge to urinate, Nausea, incoherent thoughts, visual and auditory problems, to name a few. In this case, there is a real threat that could lead to serious injury or death. However, if you've noticed with your own anxiety or seen others with their anxiety, 99.999% of the time, there is no external threat. So with the 99.99% rule... We are just afraid of what's inside us. It's an inside job. We are afraid of what's inside us. It has to be that way because if there is no external threat, it has to be within us. I'm being redundant here to make this very clear. People will externalize their anxiety problems when it clearly is an internalized situation. Here's a vignette. Teenager Joe Smith is angry at his father who is demeaning him. Father tells son that he's useless, and he, the son, should have been aborted. Imagine this. This is terrible. So go. I'm going to continue. The son, understandably, has retaliatory rage toward the father. The son's feelings and impulses are pushed down out of his consciousness, or he allows himself to see in fantasy what he'd like to do to hurt or physically attack his father. Remember, the son does not actually physically attack the father. He would like to in fantasy, but he's not going to do it. This is all too much for the son. Within a few seconds of what just took place, the son becomes afraid of his impulses and feelings, which translates into anxiety symptoms. 
Since anxiety symptoms are uncomfortable and in some cases debilitating, the sun quickly goes to defense. These defenses or walls, as they are frequently called, keep the sun from dealing with its feelings and impulses. The sun is stuck. Father and son don't talk about this problem. Father and son are lost in defenses. Unfortunately, this is not an uncommon problem. So that's the vignette. Now, the reality is, uh, for many, many psychotherapists, they don't have a framework in how to do this work to help the son and the father uh, get past their defenses. So that's uh, one blog to look at. Let's look at another one here. Um, Going back to the blog list here. Um, Okay. I'm going to go to one that's called Your Earliest Memory. And so I'm going to, again, uh, tell you this story. This is a real story. This is about me and my parents. So, um, oh, well, actually, I'm getting confused. Anyway, here's the, here's, the, uh, here's the show here. Handshakes to hurt. This is a different show than I thought. Hands, handshakes in which two people extend their arms to some degree and clasp each other's hand and easily shake within a moderate degree of satisfaction is a common way of greeting one another. This is so common as to be the norm. But the handshakes often feel like a quick ritual, which indeed they are. There are two extremes with the amount of squeeze power. One extreme is the cruncher squeeze, usually a male who gives some degree of pain to the person whose hand is getting crunched. The squeezer is giving some degree of discomfort slash pain to the victim, the squeezee. And then uh, to make this clear for a moment, just as there is the employer and the employee, similarly within what we're focusing on right now, the squeezer, we're talking about the squeezer and the squeezee. So back to what I'm talking about. So the other extreme is someone who barely has any tone of grasp when shaking another person's hand. In extreme cases, the handshake has less tone than an overcooked limp noodle. More often, it is a female who has a limp low tone, barely touching the other person's hand. However, there are more males who have a low tone hand shake than males who go to the cruncher routine. In 1967, I, Jonathan J. Brower, had about a one-minute chat with Muhammad Ali, formerly Cassius Marcellus Clay. And uh, when we had about a three-second, we had about a three-second handshake, and I was very surprised that his shake was so soft with almost no tone. I was surprised that this powerful boxer was such a powder puff handshaker. My guess slash hunch is that the super powerful male, cruncher, squeezer kind of guy, is less than 5% of men in the United States of America. Among women, it's probably one in a billion. Uh, What are the speculations that come to your mind as to why these male cruncher, squeezer types give various degrees of pain to the guy with whom they shake hands? My speculation, and I, I say speculation, is that these men had had fathers or other men in their lives who were hurtful and harmful to them. These young boys allowed themselves to have their striated muscles, the muscles for fight or flight, to be activated. These boys were ready for assault in their unconscious, but decided not to totally crush the, not, not, but, but decided not to totally crush the hand being shaken by the adult perpetrator. These boys tended to generalize towards all men, perhaps with some exceptions, to crush them, not literally, but within reason, to give these men a degree of their retaliatory rage. These cruncher-squeezer guys had a different bend with their mothers. They put their mothers on a pedestal to avoid allowing themselves to face the rage they had towards their mothers who did little or nothing to protect their children. What we do know in general is that the parent, in this case and in most cases, who does not protect the child from the abusive parent, is the parent that the child has the most rage toward. May all your handshakes be noticeable to you, and may you have the memory to allow your feelings as you do to engage in handshakes. Be aware of what it is you feel with your emotions. Bye for now. Now, emotions are very important for us, and a lot of people want to avoid their emotions. Um, Some of the emotions that um, people uh, have have to do with all kinds of issues. Uh, 
and we're supposed to uh, we're not supposed to be angry, we're not supposed to be sad. The whole thing is pathetic. We're supposed to have our real feelings. It's important to have our real feelings. So um, uh, I'm going to tell you about my earliest memory, another vignette here. So here goes. Here's the how, here's how the blog begins. What is your earliest memory? How old were you at the time? What was the memory, me, what was your memory about and how today is it relative, this might be a pun, to you as an adult? Let's take a look at my earliest memory that I vividly have locked in my mind, or so I think. After all, one can have some distortions in old memories. Here's my story. One day when I was four years old, I inadvertently cut my arm near my left bicep on the side of my sister's six-year-old play stove that apparently had very sharp edges. Immediately, from my point of view, blood was gushing from my upper left arm, and I was scared, or so I thought. I don't remember being all that scared. Within a few seconds of the blood, of the blood spouting out of my arm, my mother, no stranger to anxiety, came to my aid, or perhaps aid herself, really, the fear and anguish in my mother's face was very scary to me. So I got scared, of course, when I saw how scared she looked. My mother quickly whisked me into the bathroom and spoke to my father, who was in the bathtub with lots of bubble baths on the surface of the water. He was busy enjoying a bubble bath, believe it or not. My father quickly told my mother to put a towel on the wound. Then he said, I'll be out of the bathtub soon. So this is you know, Johnny Brower talking. My name is Jonathan Brower these days, but then I was Johnny Brower. So from my point of view as little Johnny Brower, as a four-year-old, I wanted my dad out of the water instantly. Uh, I knew he was a surgeon, and I wanted him to take care of me this instant. As I'm waiting for my father to get to work on my bloody wound, it seemed like an eternity. From my perspective, dad just wasn't all, wasn't all that interested in coming to my injury. I vividly remember that from my point of view. Dr. Dad just wasn't in a hurry to take care of me. After he finally got out of the bathtub and got dressed, he and Mom and I were in the car headed for my dad's medical office. On the way to the office, my anxiety-ridden mother looked scary as she looked off and on toward my face. She couldn't stand to look at my face considerably. She had to keep looking away to avoid her feelings. When we arrived at my father's office, I was put on the medical table with my face toward the ceiling. Mother was on my right side, holding me down on the table, her face and body full of high anxiety. She looked like an emotional wreck. Father on the left side was putting four stitches in my left arm. I vividly recall feeling safe as my dad was taking care of me. I also had some degree of loving toward him, very strong loving, actually. On the way home from Dad's office, my mother was less anxious, and the drives home seemed nice, low-key, without much or maybe no anxiety in the car and, and, and for all three of us, but I'm not sure about that for, for certain. The next morning, I had some, some bandages on my stitched wound, and everything seemed okay regarding the drama of the night before. Here's the rest of the story. Twenty years later, at age 24, I asked my dad, why didn't you get out of the bathtub much faster? Wow, dad, for the past 24 years, I viewed you as being, yeah, for the past 20 years, I viewed you as being unconcerned about my well-being over the event of 20 years ago. It blew me away that I had to hold back and not tell you this sooner. We both smiled and had some closure. It had been a pleasure giving you a slice of my life. Should anyone want to tell me your earliest memory, please tell me in a much detailed way as you want. Include, if you like, how you see this early memory being congruent or not in how you ate, excuse me, how you are now. Bye for now. So I'm going to give you my office phone number, and if any of you at some point want to tell me about your earliest memory, I'd love to hear about it. So you can call me at 818 area code 707-4557. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, in Southern California. So um, I think it's almost time for another break. I'm not sure. But uh, 
It is. Okay, we're taking a break, everybody. I'll be back in a minute and a half or whatever, and we'll have more interesting things to talk about. Bye for now. Hang on. Hang on. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. Legal Shield, total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip, with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to my show, this is Jonathan Brower. The name of my show is Human Behavior, What a Trip. I love human behavior. can't get enough of it. So um, I'm going to give you some other blogs. And this, this one also is uh, a real, uh, the real uh, um, case. It's with me and my parents again and my sister and my dog. It's called, the name of this blog is called A Boy and His Dog and What Happened That Went So Wrong. So here goes the story. This is a true story. One day, my father came home with an adorable 12-week young German Shepherd. My sister and I were so excited to have this new friend. My father was enthralled with the dog, too. Within minutes of holding and petting the female puppy, we named it Babe. My mother, taking all this in from a distance, was lukewarm towards the pup. I fell in love with Babe almost instantaneously. She was my best friend. We had a bucket of water in the yard so Babe could have full access for her hydration. While she was so young, she'd at times crawl into the bucket of water and blow bubbles in the water. When she felt like getting out of the water, she'd climb out and shake her wet fur. She was so much fun. As Babe grew up to be an adult canine, bad things happened. I, at the age of nine, knew that the... Let me start again. I, at the age of nine knew that the dynamics of my parents were way out of whack. My father, who suffered with low-grade depression, had brought the puppy home without having told my mom anything about this. Clearly, he knew that mom was afraid of dogs. He knew that she had tremendous anxiety problems, much of which was for me, my sister, and dad, a no-win situation. Basically, he went with his passive-aggressive hostility full bore towards his wife, my mother. By the time Babe reached adulthood, She was a protective dog for our family and, at times, a formidable force towards some adults, usually the mail carrier and the UPS delivery people who were in uniform. Then she'd bark and snarl and show off her formidable sharp teeth and her straighter muscles, the muscles for fight or flight. Remember, don't forget she's a German Shepherd dog. All this created more trouble for my parents. It was dad versus mom with my sister and me in the middle of the two combatants. From the end of early puppyhood, Babe was most often sequestered in a portion of our backyard. She would come in the house to sleep at night, but she wasn't part of the family to easily fit in with our mother. 
Uh, my sister and my father and I were delighted to have Babe in the house as much as possible. Somewhere in the sixth grade, Babe followed me about 50 yards behind to my elementary school. When I got to school, she, she Babe, came, to, she came up to me, and we were both so happy. I, I'd, talked, I'd walked all this way, maybe three, three quarters of a mile to school, and I didn't even know she was behind me. So when I got to school, uh, Babe, my dog, came up to me, and we were both so happy. We were just so genuinely happy to be at school together. And, um, but then I had to take her back home. I wanted her to be in my life so much more than I had, but uh, the mom versus dad issue kept all four of us family members uptight and conflicted about dad's passive-aggressive stuff and mom's over-the-top anxiety. So one day at the age of around 12, I came home from school with my sister. My sister was two and a half years older than I was. I was about 12, so she was about 14 and a half. And uh, immediately when we got home, we realized Babe, our loved dog, our beloved dog, was not at home. We asked Mom about Babe. She told us that Babe was sent to live at a farm where she'd have more freedom and a family that would love her. But we... My sister and I loved Babe, and we wanted her home with us. A few hours later, my dad came home, and we went through the same BS with him. My sister and I were sobbing for hours. Our beloved Babe was gone. My sister and I asked if we could go visit Babe at the farm. We were told that Babe's home was many miles away, too long to go to. Within a few weeks, I closed down, and somehow at the time, I became shut off from my strong sadness and anger toward my parents. For the next 12 years, I really took joy in playing with a dog. For me, this saga was a huge attachment bond rupture. My beloved dog was taken away from me. My parents attempted to placate me, but it was useless. My father, with his low-level depression and his passive-aggressive stance with mom and her anxiety levels that kept her at an emotional mess, meant the dog was gone. Years later, when I'd ask about this trauma, My father would give me some watered-down version of how, if he could have done it differently, he would have, in essence, uh, not bring home the dog. My mother never put words that made any sense when I'd ask her about this long saga, this long-ago saga. Basically, she'd just talk about it in vague and short words and then change the topic, all the while being filled with anxiety. So looking back on this saga of 50 years ago, a little more than 50 years ago, is it any surprise that my specialty as a psychotherapist is with anxiety and depression? Oh, currently I have two wonderful golden doodles, Wrigley and Fenway. Their mothers are golden retrievers and their fathers are full-sized poodles. Thank you for taking time to read the blog. I'm eager to get feedback from you if you are so inclined. Bye for now. So this is Jonathan Brower giving you my um, phone number again. It's area code 818 seven zero seven four five five seven and if any of you have any um, memories early memories or better yet your very first memory that you have is fairly clear if you want to send it to me in uh, writing or uh, you can go to my website and find that out or you can um, do it any way you want call me on the telephone my website by the way is defeatanxietynow.com I'll also give you my email address. It's jbrower, B-R-O-W-E-R, Ph.D., at yahoo.com. So it's jbrower, Ph.D., at yahoo.com. So um, I want to do a little bit of a tag on this, this, this one vignette with my dog, my beloved dog. So... Um, my parents, what they apparently wanted to do was for Janet and I not to know about how our dog was going to be taken away eventually. We just came home and the dog was gone. So this was a huge attachment bond rupture from both my parents, and it was hurtful for both Janet and I. And these attachment bond ruptures didn't get talked about, and they didn't get repaired. Uh, well, with my father, it did get repaired many years later. With my mother, it never got repaired, and it couldn't get repaired because she was just too anxious about what was inside her. She couldn't tolerate her strong feelings. And these attachment bond ruptures take place frequently. 
And there's, there's no problem with the attachment bond rupture if the rupture can uh, early and quickly be uh, um, repaired. And the issue isn't that parents can't mess up. The issue is when they do mess up, they need to uh, re- repair the attachment bond rupture. But I'd say at least 50% of people in the world can't do that with their children. It's a terrible problem. Okay, let's go back to the blogs. I'm enjoying the blogs. I hope I'm not talking too fast, by the way, when we do the blogs. So uh, I'm trying to look for another one to get to. And uh, let's see. Oh, here's a good one. This one's called Sadism Under the Guise of Fun. Sadism is where somebody gets pleasure in hurting somebody else. So, you know, you've heard of someone who's sadistic. They're hurting somebody else. So here's the name of the blog, Sadism Under the Guise of Fun. Okay, here's the vignette. This one is made up. I, I've seen it happen, but this, this doesn't involve me or my parents. Here it goes. Five-year-old Amy had a new game introduced by her father. He would tickle Amy, who liked it at first. But when the tick- tickling became more than she could bear, the father's sadism ratched up his intensive tickling. Mother, hearing the noise and being concerned about Amy's well-being, attempted to squelch her husband's cruelty. The wife took a rather lazier approach. She didn't demand he stop the abusive tickling. She merely let her husband know that he was, quote, overdoing it, unquote, and left it at that. Amy was in a bind. She liked the tickling up to a point, but when her sadistic father continued to tickle her beyond what she wanted, mother and father went flat and left Amy with not enough protection. Amy became became angry at her parents, who dismissed and minimized her being angry at her parents. Guess which parent she was angrier at, mom or dad? The answer was mom. Mom wasn't willing to protect Amy no matter what the cost to her husband and their marriage. From Amy's point of view, father was cruel and mother wasn't willing to stand up for Amy. The parent who isn't invested in protecting a child is the child that is most uh, angry. (laughs) If that makes sense, I'll, I'll say it again. The parent who isn't invested in protecting the child is the one the child is most angry at. Amy's father was sadistic with Amy. Mother took the role of passivity and not shaking this family. As time went on, mother and father became less connected. Mother became more aware of her husband's sadism. His cruelty was, quote, petty, unquote, in some people's eyes, but the degree of his cruelty was below what the law would do anything about. By the time Amy was in high school, her parents divorced. She had some degree of loving feelings for her parents, but inside her she carried her five-year-old anger toward her parents who couldn't and wouldn't help her. She pushed her anger down and lived with depression and anxiety, which I talked about earlier today. When Amy was in her early 20s, she married and a year later had the first of two children. Her first child, a girl, was not to be like Amy as a child. Amy came across intensive, short-term dynamic psychotherapy. Her therapy was deep and relatively quick. Now we're talking about Amy, the adult who went in to have intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. She was not a patient of mine, by the way. But her therapy was deep and relatively quick. 20 hours of work, and she no longer had problems with depression and anxiety. She came out of therapy knowing about her feelings and impulses. Her children, now in their early teens, learned from their mom and dad that they could be aware of their feelings and impulses and share them with people who wanted to know about them without walls getting in the way. Amy's journey has been full of pain and pleasure. I'm so glad her life is basically a stable and self-assured person who can withstand all her real feelings and be alive to enjoy her life. This is Dr. Brower letting you know that I hope this is a slice of life that can be of use for you. Should you want to call me for whatever reason, please call me at 818, area code 707 
So we might have one more time for a blog, probably a shorter one. Let's see what I can pull up very quickly. Okay, uh, let's see here. Oh, here's one that I have. It's called Just a Second. Okay, two minutes. Hopefully we can do this in less than two minutes. We've got a big problem, at least in North America. What is the problem? The problem is that we expect quick results now much of the time. Bart Simpson goes nuts when he has to wait 30 seconds to have his non-nutritious Pop-Tart heated in the microwave. We're in a nation of quick fixes, quick Twitters, quick this and quick that. It's as though there's little time for slow and, and, for, for slow and glow. Have you noticed when you call someone on the phone, whether a friend or some person in the business, the person will say, I'll be with you in a second. It really is for a second. In some cases, it may be some minutes before they get back to you. Why does the person on the other end of the phone say, I'll be with you in a second? They say it's because they give you the illusion that they can be incredibly fast, but it's just fake. It's too manic. We're supposed to be fast and not last. But people go wild with all kinds of frantic ways to lose weight and to make huge money fast, to have their house buy really fast, blah, 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 drive fast, complain fast. So where and when do we have time to slow down and make good, secure, and loving attachment for people we love. How often do we and do you slow down your frizzled, sizzled insides? It takes time to have the mindfulness of how to feel your emotions in your body. Lots of people are too frantic, too anxious, too even to know they have a whole inner world within in themselves. They're going fast, 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 fast. And then what? They crash. They crash, crash, crash. So... Uh, when we can slow down and make really wonderful connections and attachments with people we love, who we love and care about, our beings are happier, we're calmer, we're downright delicious. Scarfing down an apple pie may be delicious, but holding hands with someone you love is way more delicious than the pie. So what might you consider doing that you haven't done in the past to be frantic? Are you willing to be slowing down, smelling the flowers, listening intensely to somebody deeply? Please do. When my sister and I were youngsters, at times we played this game of sorts, when we talk real slow and slow southern drawl, we'd really stretch out every syllable way beyond the normal accents. It really felt fun to make an, an average sentence last about 20 seconds. But you know what? We had just plain old fun. This is Dr. Jonathan Brower letting you know that you may slow down and find out what's inside you that you like a lot whenever it fits your schedule. Call me if you're so inclined at 818-707-4557. Thank you again for listening today. Tune in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for Human Behavior, What a Trip with Dr. Jonathan Brower on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have fun experiencing your human behavior. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.